With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Money for the Rest Fund. This is a personal finance show. It's on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today's episode is number 183, How to Invest in Commercial Real Estate. When I was in high school for about a year, I was a janitor. I cleaned a medical office building. Who would have thought so many years later I could actually own a piece of an office building for only $25,000? We'll learn how to do that in this episode, What to Look For, And this is really geared toward those that don't want to manage an office building or other commercial real estate, but would like to invest in it. Back in episode 64, I talked about the pitfalls of private real estate investing, the the amount of work it takes to actually own, for example, rental real estate that you buy directly. And then in episode 108, I introduced real estate crowdfunding real estate sites and sort of what to look for there. We're going to talk a little bit more about that today. But there's really three ways as an asset allocator, as we split up our assets into different drivers of return, one of those buckets or categories should be real estate. And the three ways to own real estate without going out and buying your own rental property is through publicly traded real estate investment trust or REITs. You can own private real estate investment trusts, which are available on crowdfunding platforms such as Fundrise or Realty Mogul. Or you could actually invest directly in a commercial real estate transaction, also via those same crowdfunding platforms. Today's episode, a lot of instruction on how to invest in real estate. And we're going to start with REITs. A real estate investment trust is a publicly traded company that owns and operates income-producing real estate. And in the U.S., they they must pay out 90% of their taxable income in the form of dividends. So this is an income strategy. You have a company that owns various properties. Maybe they own office buildings, perhaps they own malls and other type of real estate, self-storage, and and they're global. So there's U.S.-based REITs, there's REITs that are outside of the U.S. And as an investor, it's the simplest way for us to invest in real estate because these are publicly traded securities, these public REITs, so you can buy them just like you can buy any other stock. Now, Most investors, including me and when I worked with institutions, we didn't go out and try to figure out which particular REITs we buy. You typically purchase them or invest in them through some type of co-mingled vehicle. As an investment advisor, institutional investment advisors, as we worked with college endowments and foundations, we would typically hire 
an active manager, generally in some type of mutual fund vehicle. Some Oftentimes, it might have been just a commingled trust. And then that manager, you would pay a management fee for them to go and build a portfolio of, say, 50 or 60 underlying REITs. So you got the diversification by property sector and type. Now, you don't have to do that. You can buy an exchange-traded fund that invests in REITs. And by, in fact, there's probably even index funds that well, I know there, there are index funds, mutual funds that passively get exposure to, to REITs and the, the management fee is much lower. Now, the question is, does it pay? Is it worth it to hire an active manager? And it turns out not necessarily. S&P does a study where they look at how well have active managers done in terms of their ability to, to outperform the, a passive benchmark. For the five years ending June 2017, 85% of REIT funds underperformed the passive REIT index. And for the three years, 72% underperformed. It's only been in the last year that most REIT managers have actually outperformed. So 43% underperformed, 57% outperformed for the year ending June 2017. What changed? Well, it was a big dispersion by sector. And as an active REIT manager, if you underweighted the retail sector, so regional malls, community retail, those had double-digit losses over the past year. Whereas the other sectors, such as as hotels, were up 28%. Industrials, REIT sectors are up 24%. So pretty big dispersion. And so as there was an opportunity for an active manager to, to outperform. But over the five years, most didn't. And so Typically today, I get my exposure to publicly traded REITs through an exchange-traded fund or an index mutual fund. Now, with any asset class, we need to understand, well, what's driving the return? And, And what's a reasonable return going forward? And that starts with the dividend yield. REITs pay out dividends, a 90% or more of their taxable income goes to dividends. And so when we look at the current dividend yield for the FTSE NAREIT U.S. Real Estate Index, it's 4.2%. It's well below average. So its 20-year average is 5.6%. So 4.2% is near historic lows. So like many asset classes today, that they sell at a premium valuation. Just to put that in perspective, so the 20-year average was 5.6%. In February 2009, REITs were selling at a dividend yield of 11.1%. So now we've had a, a recovery in REITs and to the extent that they've done well over the last five years. So the, fa- the five-year return, cumulative return for the U.S. REIT index was about 60% cumulative. So they've not done as well as the U.S. stock market, which is up 102% 
on a cumulative basis over the past five years, but they've they've done well. And as they have appreciated, the dividend yield has come down to well to where it's it's around four point two percent. Now, there's other ways to measure the valuation of REITs to decide whether they're overvalued or not. The first is the REIT equivalent of a price-to-earnings ratio, and it's called funds from operation. And currently, according to Real Capital Analytics, REITs, U.S. REITs, are selling at 16.5 times funds from operation. So funds created just you know, the real estate income funds, basically the, the version of profits, from operations selling 16.5 times. That's about average. So on a on a funds from operation basis, REITs are not significantly overvalued, just that their dividend yields are really low. The other way to look at it is because REITs are publicly traded securities that own real estate, we can look at the value of those REITs, their prices across the entire sectors in the U.S. and compare it to the value of the real estate. And so sometimes REITs will sell at a premium. So the the investors are valuing the REITs more than the value of the real estate that the REITs own. Sometimes they're selling at a discount. Right now, they're about a 2% discount to the net asset value. And historically, they sell at about a 2% to 3% premium. So by that measure, REITs are not significantly overvalued. Now, what we'll look at is how richly priced is that underlying real estate. And we'll see in a few minutes that it is priced a little high right now in terms of some of the metrics we use for that. What's a reasonable expectation for REITs given the current environment? Well, you can use a building block approach. You can look at the dividend yield and then estimate what, how fast will those dividends grow. And the dividend will grow typically in line with the net operating income of the REIT. They're, they're essentially their pre-tax profits, which then get paid out as, as dividends. And so analyst estimates that REITs should grow their net operating income by about 3% over the next year. And with REITs yielding the dividend yield of 4.2%, that's about a 7.2% expected return if there's no change in valuations. If REITs sell at a lower price to, to funds from operation, you'll see a lower return for REITs. And if they become more richly valued, you'll see a higher return for REITs. But we can look at, well, what's their dividend yield? And what's the expectation for that dividend to grow over time? So REITs, by and large, they're in, for example, the model portfolios on Money for the Rest of Us Plus. I own them in my personal portfolio. It's not the best time in the world to own them because the dividend yields are below average. But then again, interest rates are below average. But in the current environment, they're, they're growing their dividends. Certainly, retail REITs have, have suffered. So regional malls and community retail. But to some extent, that almost seems overdone because REITs can change their portfolio mix. If you're a regional mall REIT, you can get rid of 
properties that aren't doing so well, you can upgrade them and you can actively manage as an individual REIT. And But generally, by owning a diversified portfolio of REITs, you get exposure to that and, and a reasonable expectation is about a 7%, 6 to 7% annual return. Another way to invest in commercial real estate is through what's known as a private real estate investment trust. And this again is there's a manager, they're going out and they're buying real estate properties. Perhaps they're investing on the equity side or the debt side, but it, it's a private read. And, and by private means it's definitely not as liquid as a public REIT investment. Public REITs you can sell on, on an exchange, daily liquidity. A private REIT, they're sponsored by generally crowdfunding platforms. So I mentioned Realty Mogul and Fundrise. The, the benefit of a private REIT versus being investing directly in a, a real estate transaction is you don't need to be an accredited investor. Credit investors in the U.S., you have to have a net worth of at least a million dollars, excluding the value of your primary residence, or income of two hundred thousand if you file an individual tax return, or three hundred thousand dollars if you combine combined tax return if you're married. And so, over the past two years, and so there's some some hurdles that the government, in its infinite wisdom, has to said: if you don't meet these hurdles, you can't invest in these so-called sophisticated transactions. But private REITs, you can, and oftentimes they'll have a minimum investment of only $5,000. Now, again, you you have a a manager there and you're paying them a fee to manage to select investments for you of a 1% to 1.25% per year of the value of the account. And then they'll charge other fees. They'll charge an acquisition fee. If they buy a property, they'll, they'll, charge up to 3% the fund for the work they did to find the property, and they'll charge 2% when they sell a property. And the thing about these private REITs is they're, they're not really a, they say at some point they're going to end them, but there's no target date for it to end, which means they're not very liquid at all. They, they, t- they tend to have some way to repurchase shares. So they might agree that's why you got to study the documents to agree 5% of the shares outstanding per year. This is a very long-term investment. Now, often because they are illiquid, they, they do are able to, to be more patient with their underlying investments and can generally earn a higher yield in terms of income than you'll get in a public REIT. But you have to recognize that this is an illiquid investment. It's not something you can hop in and out of. So you need to read the documentation very close. But, and again, the track record for many of these is very short. So you're trusting these platforms to select the real estate investments for you. And and so there's a level of trust and you don't have a track record to look at, but it does earn, is expected to earn a higher return than public REITs in exchange for giving up the liquidity that you get with a public real estate investment trust security, either a fund or an ETF. Let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. Sometimes it's just nice to sit back, relax, maybe even take a nap. That's not what you want your money to be doing. You want it to be working hard for you, 
earning interest, generating returns. That's where the Betterment Automated Investing and Savings app can help. Betterment's technology gives you advanced tools that are built to help you maximize returns. They have diversified portfolios of low-cost ETFs that have been constructed by experts. High-yield cash accounts, where your money can earn 11 times the national average. And automated investing technology, like automated rebalancing. These tools can help you reach your savings and investing goals. Betterment is a fiduciary. That means it's their job to act in your best interest. They will never recommend an investment or give you guidance unless they believe it will help you reach your financial goals. So visit Betterment.com to get started. Learn more about the high-yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk, performance not guaranteed, cash reserves offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. I know in our business, having the right candidates for the job is critical to keep our business running smoothly. Now, LinkedIn isn't just another job board. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. It gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. LinkedIn does all that while making the process easy and intuitive. Hiring is easy when you have that many quality candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. So post your job for free at linkedin.com slash David. That's linkedin.com slash David to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. I mentioned how with public REITs, you can compare the value of the REIT, the publicly traded price, to the value of the underlying real estate. And that we're about a 2% discount right now. But private real estate valuations are selling at a premium. And one of the ways we measure that is what's known as the cap rate. What the cap rate is, it's, it's a ratio. It's the net operating income from a property. So it's rent after its expenses divided by the property value. What's the property selling at? And right now that cap rate is 4.4%, which is, is quite low. In 2010, cap rates were roughly 6.6%. And in 2001, they're 8.25%. So cap rates have been coming down. But during recessions, they go up again. And so recessions can be detrimental to commercial real estate valuations because during a recession, occupancy rates go down. Investors get more risk averse. They demand higher cap rates. So when we look where we are in the current cycle, it, it's a pretty seasoned cycle because cap rates are so low. Now, the long-term average for cap rates is that they typically yield about 1% more than U.S. Treasuries, 10-year U.S. Treasuries, so about 1% more. Right now, we're at 2.2% above. So relative valuations are, are reasonable compared to average, but absolute valuations at a 4.4% cap rate is, is very low. And so when we look at potentially investing 
in individual real estate transactions, we want to be aware what's the cap rate that we're doing the transaction at. Recognizing cap rates could go back to normal, could rise as interest rates rise or if a recession hits. Now that's nationally all different types of property type. The cap rates is 4.4%. But for office, it's at 4.3%. So that's it's even lower. And again, it's below average. And so we're later in the real estate cycle. And so the third way we can invest in real estate as an asset allocator is to, to invest in specific deals. And that takes a lot more work because you have to dig into the financials and you're acting just like a real estate manager as a as an investment advisor. I co-ran a research group and we would spend hours finding direct real estate managers and we would invest in their funds or our clients would invest in their funds and they would go and they would invest in specific properties. And we look at their track record, their investment philosophy, their process, we get to know their people. That's what you're doing when you're working on a crowdfunding platform. If you're an accredited investor, you can build, you can invest in specific deals, but you're trusting a partner to go in and manage that property. You get to see the property, but you don't have all the information you necessarily would like to have. At least as I went through an example, and I thought it'd be interesting. I'm not a real estate expert. I, I have I've spent a lot of time with real estate managers. I've certainly invested in REITs. I, I've looked at how real estate managers do that, but I haven't spent years investing in real estate. So I just took one deal off one of the real estate crowdfunding platforms. And for disclosures reasons, I'm not going to give all the specifics, but I just want to walk through an exercise of what you look for if you were going to conduct due diligence on a real estate transaction. This particular deal was a class A office building. By class A, that's the premier building. There's class A, B, and C. So A are the prestigious building. They're newer and they can command the highest rent. This was two buildings, one built in 1985, the other in the year 2000. 102,000 square feet, a mid-rise building about three or four stories high, 10 tenants, primarily financial companies, 99% occupied. Now, the most important thing when you're looking at these deals is the location, particularly how much supply is there and how much potential supply can come online. What was attractive about this building is in the northern suburbs of a metropolitan area, but sort of that first rung suburb. So a lot of wealthy individuals, households in the area, not a lot of room for new property development. And there's really only three class A buildings in the area. And this is 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 the best, Premier. So they have the highest rates and and it tracks financial tenants because they're, they're close to the households that live near there. And it's only a two-minute walk from the train station. And so you have a lot of trains going through. And so this is a, this is a great location. And that's one of the things you want to consider is, is where is it located and how hard is it to develop competing properties? In this case, because of its location and restrictive zoning, probably not a lot uh, of 
or of really any potential competition, and that hopefully will keep occupancy rates high. But any asset class, the number of questions we want to ask, and, and one is, who's on the other side of the trade? Who's selling this building? Well, it turns out the seller is an asset manager that manages money for family offices. It's not a real estate owner or manager. And they decided they just don't want to be property owners. They don't want to be property managers. They want to focus on their asset management business. Now, I got on a webinar. And what you can do for these crowdfunding platforms, you can get on a webinar, you can listen to the, 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 the representatives from the real estate company that is buying the property. And so you spend time, you can listen to them. And they said this property was widely marketed, which made me a little nervous because if it's widely marketed, that means there's a lot of different investors that have looked at this and passed on it. Or it would became this heated competition. Well, this particular real estate company, they were able to strike a deal and they paid $12.8 million for this property, including fees. And they're raising about 72% debt. And then they're going to raise some equity. The, the real estate crowdfunding platform is, is raising about $1.75 million. There are other equity investors. But another red flag is the real estate companies only investing $350,000 of their own money in a $13 million project. So that's, on a percentage basis, about 2 to 3%, which is normal, but the absolute dollar amount was fairly low. Now, we talked about these cap rates. The, the national cap rates for office buildings about 4.3%. They were able to buy this building at a cap rate of 8.8% based on 2016 operations. So much higher cap rates, which means the higher the cap rate, the lower the valuation. So there's there's some margin of safety there. No idea, given how widely marketed this was, why they were able to buy it at such a high cap rate. What they were able to, in fact, they estimated based on 2018 operations, the cap rate would be 9% to 10%. So good location, decent valuation for buying it. The next question is, what are the fees? As an investor, who's getting a cut of this deal? Well, you have a project manager that's managing this real estate on a day-to-day basis. They're charging 3%. And so that that the net operating income, so you got the rents and the expenses, that 3% is part of those expensive. But on top of that, you have an asset management fee. So the real estate company that found the deal, that's managing it, they're getting another 0.75% to manage the asset. And then the crowdfunding platform's getting a 1% fee on top of that. So total expense ratios, not counting the expense to run the property, is 1.75%. And the real estate company gets another 1% when they sell the property. So there's some fees layered in there, which is why this deal would not work very well. If the, if the cap rate's 8.8%, and if there was no debt involved, you would be backing out, what, 2% fees. And so there, the potential return is 6%. But the expected return is higher than that because, as I mentioned, the real estate company is, is borrowing about 70% of the purchase price. They got a seven-year loan at a 4.5% fixed interest rate. 
from a regional bank. And so you get the net operating income. So you have the, the rent and then they're paying the expenses to manage the property to take care of it. And then they have net operating income. Then they have to service the debt. So one of the things you want to consider is how much cash flow is being generated to service the debt. And it's called the debt coverage ratio. And so it's basically dividing the, the net operating income by the debt service cost. So in this case, net operating income is about $1.5 million a year. And the debt service is about $600,000 a year. So that coverage ratio is 2.4 times. So that's pretty good. The higher the coverage ratio, the bigger the margin of safety. So what's the potential upside as an investor? Well, they're suggesting that the expectation, if they're able to improve the building, because one of the things they've done is they're holding back about half a million dollars for improvement to make the lobbies nicer. They're, they're planning on bringing in new management of, in terms of managing the property day-to-day to hopefully make the tenants happier. Because one of the things you don't want to consider is what's, what's the real estate company doing? It's a class A building. What has to happen for the return expectations to be achieved? In this case, you want to keep the tenants there and keep them paying rent. And so they're, they're going to be doing some, some maintenance and some improvements to the building. But they estimate the expected return is 2.4 times the amount of equity invested. So for every dollar you put in, you could get 2.4 times the amount. And they're estimating the average cash-on-cash return of 11.3%. So in a given year, you'll get about a return of about 11% on the amount that you invested. And then they're estimating what's known as an internal rate of return of 16.1%. What's the eternal rate of return? Well, that is essentially it's a discount rate. So you have you put in your $25,000 if that's what you're investing. That's the minimum. And then you're going to get these cash flows in terms of that income each year. And then when the building is sold in seven years, you'll get sort of a balloon payment. So an eternal rate of return is what is the, the discount rate that will take those future cash flows and put them into today's dollars that it would be break even for you. So if we discount those future cash flows at 16.1%, that's sort of the break even amount. So that's the potential return in terms of 11% cash on cash return, 2.4 times the amount you invested and a 16.1% internal rate of return. What has to happen to actually get those returns? What could go wrong? Well, I mentioned they got to they got to they got to raise the rents because the only way you get a, a property to go up in value is to raise the rents. So they're assuming in seven years they'll be able to sell this property for nineteen million dollars, and they bought it for thirteen. Why is the value higher? Well, they're assuming they've raised the rents two and a half percent a year, but the cap rate they're selling it for they're estimating to be seven point seven five percent. So they bought it for a 9 to 10% cap rate. They're assuming they're going to be able to sell it for a higher valuation. That's a risk. That's something you have to consider. Now, 7.75% is higher than cap rates now, which are at 4.5%. But that's one of the risks. Will they be able to, to sell the property at the end of seven years at the valuation they assume? 
Another risk is a number of those tenants, there's only 10 of them, their lease is, is up for renewal, renewal in coming years. Will they be able to get it renewed? Will we enter into a recession? And financial companies don't want to be there anymore. That's a risk with any type of office commercial property. Your, your bread and butter is the rents. And if you get vacancies, then that can hurt your return. So that's a risk. Will they be able to renew it? They think they can because of the prime location close to the train station and a lack of competition from other buildings. Another risk is deferred maintenance. They've, pulled, they've held back about a half million dollars to make improvements to the building. But if there's something else that needs to be done, some major structural issue, that potentially could also hurt the returns. Now, the way you get this return is, is the deal is set up is that the the investors, you would get the first 8%. So you get all the cash flows after fees, expenses, debt services. The first cash flow goes to the original investors. And up until they have earned a cumulative 8% return. And the target's 11 to 16. But once you get 8% and you get the money back that you invested, then those cash flows are split 50-50 between the real estate company and the limited partners in this LLC, so the investors, until the real estate company is getting 25%, has got 25% of all the cash flows that were generated. At that point, it splits 75-25. 75% to the investors, 25% to the real estate company. That's actually higher than normal. Most institutional real estate funds it's a 20-80 split. So they get it. It's called carried interest. They get 20%. The investors get 80%. In this case, it's 75-25. But recognize that real estate company is charging a 0.75% management fee. Most institutional real estate funds, the management fee is about 1.5%. So double that. So that sort of mitigates that cash flow. But again, this is through a crowdfunding platform. So you're also paying that 1% management fee to the crowdfunding platform. So there's a lot of fees involved in private real estate investing. But we've looked at the main things that we should consider. What are the risks? What about other competition and supply? What about the risk of these renewals of, in terms of the occupants having to renew their leases? Will there be vacancies? Big risk is what will this property be sold at in seven years? Will they be able to sell it for a 7.75% cap rate. These are all risks that potentially could hurt the expected return that we talked about, trying to get 2.4 times the amount that we invested. But that's what you look for when you invest in an individual real estate transaction. Who's on the other side of the trade? Why are they selling the building? Who's buying it? One of the things I found frustrating with this is typically when we would invest with real estate managers is you would get a detailed look of their track record, a hit ratio. You could look at the individual deals. How much did each deal do? Did it break even? What was its return? What was the success ratio? In this case, this real estate company, all they showed was the list of properties that they own. We have no idea how they have done in managing that. They seem to experience, but you don't have a track record to make a judgment 
on. And so this is higher risk investing than typical institutional real estate deals because you don't have access to the real estate manager. I looked, it was a webinar. That's what I got, a webinar. And so I don't know if I'm going to do this deal or not. I just put it out there as an example. If you want to do the legwork, there's an opportunity to earn a higher return on these on these direct deals versus a private REIT or a public REIT. But there is more risk because you're not relying on professional management to make those real estate decisions for you. You're making the decision on your own, digging into spreadsheets, looking at the properties, and but you don't get all the access that you would get if you were an institutional investor talking to a specific real estate manager. So that's how to invest in commercial real estate, public REITs, private REITs, or direct transactions through crowdfunding platforms. You can get show notes for this episode at moneyfortherestofus.com. And while you're there, why don't you sign up for my free insider's guide and I'll email you weekly with those links to the article and other references for this week's episode, as well as a, an essay. Some of the best writing I do this week where I, I talk about things I wasn't able to cover in the podcast episode and other things related to investing economy, and finance. And you can get that and sign up for that at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I share with you in this episode has been for general education. I've not considered your specific risk situation, not provided investment advice, simply general education on money, investing in the economy. Have a great week.